Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Let me read to you down to Acts 8, verse 4. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Amen. Well, our sermon this morning is entitled, You Are on a Mission Field. You are on a mission field. A few Tuesday nights ago at the March meeting of our session, we were going through the docket, and as a regular feature on that docket, one of the items we have is the item outreach and evangelism. And as a matter of promoting discussion, I turned to the elders when we got to that item on our docket and I said to the elders, how are we doing? How are we doing in outreach and evangelism? And there was a meditative pause. And then one of the elders spoke up, I think, and said, probably for us all, it's not our strong suit. And we thought on that, and I said, well, I'll tell you what, I will try and bring a message or two uh, to the congregation that maybe we might work on our weakness uh, a little. And this is not to uh, lay burdens upon you that uh, we are unwilling to lift ourselves, but it is simply to uh, stir ourselves up to what the scripture says about being on the mission field, to being uh, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing that gospel with other people that are around us and with other people who even are are far away. What I want to do is give you a topical message today on this subject of outreach and evangelism, and I want to divide it into three parts for us. First of all, I want to cover a little bit of the biblical background to this subject, a little bit of biblical background to the subject of outreach and evangelism. Secondly, I want us to consider... What are some of those things that hinder us from reaching out to other people? What are some of the common problems and sometimes uncommon problems that hinder us as Christians from sharing the gospel with other people or reaching out uh, to those who are outside of the church? And then number three, I want us to look at what can we do uh, to change some of our own behavior and work towards a greater consistency in outreach to those who need the Lord Jesus Christ. So the biblical background, number one. Number two, looking at some of the hindrances. And then number three, what are some practical things we can do to maybe change our ways a bit that will help reach out uh, to other people? All right, so let's talk a little bit from the Bible's perspective. Uh, why in the world did I, change, did I uh, have us look at this passage 
I really had us look at this passage because of verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word or bringing uh, the good news of the gospel. Uh, we, I want to give you just a background a little bit before we figure out how we got here to Acts chapter 8. Let's go back to the end of the gospels and consider what we have. Jesus Christ has died for our sins and he has been raised according to the scriptures on the third day. And after making appearance unto men for a period of 40 days, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. This is just as he promised, boys and girls. You remember in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, he told the disciples that he was going to go into heaven and that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is... With his disciples, we see in Matthew 28, after he's been raised from the dead, they are astonished, they are worshiping him, they are glorifying him, and he gives them what we call the Great Commission, this this command that these apostles would go and make disciples, and literally it's stronger than just making disciples. The verb is, is a stronger verb. It is disciple the nations, not just make disciples out of the nations, but disciple the nations. Go and disciple the nations teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. And he, and he also commissioned them that they should baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's the Great Commission. Then uh, he ascends into heaven uh, as prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel said that the Son of Man would come up to the Ancient of Days and receive a throne, a kingdom, that would include all the nations of the earth. And so Jesus goes into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And as he sits... He takes all power and authority that had been granted unto him by the Father because of his obedience. Now this is, this is significant. Because then in Acts chapter 1, he, we have the, the promise of the Spirit, which was also foretold in the Gospels. And then in Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. Now why, why do I go over this? Because it is significant for us as we think about this subject of outreach and evangelism, we need to keep a couple fundamental truths in mind. Number one, Jesus has finished his work on the cross. He has been raised successfully from the dead. And now Jesus tells us that we have, he has been given all power and all authority so that when you speak with your neighbor the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can keep a couple things in mind. Number one, Jesus is on his throne. And he's sovereign and he's control over this very situation and over this very conversation that I'm engaged in now for, for the good of my neighbor. Number two, Jesus has given me the Holy Spirit to help me in a time of need. And sometimes that time of need is not just when we're in crisis, but sometimes that time of need is when we are trying our best to give answers to people for the hope that is within us. They ask us tough questions sometimes. And we need help and we feel inadequate. And so it's important that we cover some of these biblical truths to reinforce in our hearts and our minds that the Lord is with you in your personal witnessing and outreach and evangelism. Jesus Christ is on his throne. He's sovereign. He's in control. It's not up to you. He is going to use you. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. 
And He has given you the Holy Spirit to help you. He's called the Helper, boys and girls. The Holy Spirit helps us. And this is important. Sometimes I have known people to be persuaded to faith in Jesus Christ by something a child has said to them. Just a single sentence from a, a believing child has convicted an adult or has persuaded them to repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. So we do not despise. Let uh, No man look down upon your youth, children. But remember that the Holy Spirit is at work in you and through you and sometimes uses the very things you say to other people to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, if you get to Acts chapter 2, then we have Peter preaching. The Holy Spirit is poured out. And I realize... Some would say, well, this is Historia Salutis. That is, this is a redemptive act. And it is. This is a special redemptive act. Pentecost was a one-time event where the Holy Spirit was poured out uh, upon the church for the very first time to apply. But I think it it is uh, applicable to our situation. We need the Holy Spirit today in our church. And Peter preaches and 3,000 people are converted. Now, that's a sermon. Okay? 3,000 people... Come to faith in Jesus Christ in a a single sermon. Now what this says, what I want to argue, is evangelism is a whole lot easier than you think in this regard. One of the best ways you can outreach and evangelize your neighbor is simply inviting them to church. That one of the primary ways that God evangelizes, now this is not the only way, and I'm going to show you this in just a second, but hang with me. One of the primary ways God uses you to reach your neighbor is is by you compelling them to come and be a part of the worship service where they'll sit under the preaching of the word of God and they'll hear the word of God. Because God loves to use his word. His word is like a two-edged sword. His word is like fire. And the Holy Spirit uses that word that he's inspired inerrantly and infallibly And he speaks to the conscience of the unbeliever. And the unbeliever becomes aware, really, God is in their midst. Now, I I don't know how many of you have come to faith, but my guess is that I would bet many of you, if not most of you, came to faith in Jesus Christ because at some point you started sitting under the preaching of God's word. Now, sometimes it's a sudden conversion. Sometimes it's gradual, like the rising of the sun. In fact, often it's like that. But the point is here that sermons and the preaching of God's word is very important. This is one of God's primary ways to reach people. So please think about inviting people to church. This is one of the best ways that you can uh, witness for Jesus Christ. Now, don't raise your hand here, but how many of you have invited someone to church this past week? How many of you have invited somebody to church in the past three weeks? How many of you have invited somebody to church in the past three months? How many of you have invited somebody to church in the past three years? I was listening to Albert Moeller's radio program and he was interviewing church historian Martin Marty who is written about 50 books. I mean, he's got books everywhere, and he's been a church historian for a long time in America, a long-time observer of religion in this country. And I won't name the denomination, but there's this 
large mainline denomination that has been numerically and theologically in decline for decades now. And he said that uh, a study has been done that in that denomination, the average member within that denomination has invited someone to church once every 20-something years. Once every 20-something years. Think about that. Now, as you think about that, think about how often have you been inviting people to church? Now, in Acts chapter 2, after that sermon was preached and 3,000 men were converted, uh, we have the church there devoting themselves to biblical teaching, fellowship, sacraments, prayer, and it says that others day by day were being saved and added to their number. We come to Acts chapter 3, and Peter preaches a second sermon. And another group, totaling of 5,000 men now, have been added to the church. And I think when it says 5,000 men, that's not including the women and the children. Luke, I think, is telling us men. How many males? 5,000. So we're talking now a congregation that is well over 10,000 people. If you include then their wives and their children, it could be even higher than that. But certainly at least about 10,000 total by the time you get to Acts chapter 4. Now, let's fast forward here to our text in Acts chapter 7. Because after this initial success of the gospel there in Jerusalem, what happens? Well, a persecution breaks out. Stephen is stoned to death. And Paul begins, or Saul, we should call him, begins his persecution of the church. He's arresting men and even women and putting them in prison. Moms and dads are being put in prison, boys and girls. And what does the text say? That in verse 1 it says, And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Notice what God did in his providence. The church was growing and multiplying greatly there in Jerusalem. But what did Jesus say to them in Acts chapter 1? He said to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth. And what Luke does, I believe that's the thesis sentence of, of Luke's history, history in the book of Acts. He, he takes that thesis and he outlines it, uses it as an outline for your book here in Acts. And so what you have here in chapter 8 now is the gospel is now not just going from uh, to Jerusalem, but it's now going to Judea and Samaria. Because Jesus said, not just take this gospel to Jerusalem. And notice that it took affliction to get the church to start spreading the gospel. Some have interpreted this to say that the church was enjoying so much of what God was doing in Jerusalem, they forgot the Great Commission. And they forgot that Jesus said, take it to Judea, take it to Samaria and the other ends of the earth. And so God brings in his providence a persecution and everybody but the apostles starts to scatter. But notice what happens in verse four. As they scatter, they begin, it says, now the NAS, NAS translates this Greek word preaching. They, they, they went about preaching the word. Some commentaries have suggested that that Greek word might better be translated as gossip. They began gossiping the scriptures. They began gossiping the gospel to their neighbors. 
Now, this is what is significant, I think. Earlier in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Acts, we saw what? Evangelism taking place through the ordained means of the official preaching of the word of God in, in the midst of the congregation. But what we see here in this chapter now is that we also see evangelism and outreach taking place by the laity. Remember, the apostles are staying in Jerusalem. But the laity is going out and they are personally witnessing the gospel. So what I see from the New Testament that evangelism and outreach is a both and. It is, it is the formal administration of word and sacrament. But it is also the personal witnessing of the laity. Sometimes, you know, you can have extremes in various churches on one end and the other. Uh, you know, some churches, every member is a minister and they want to completely blur the line between uh, a member and a minister completely. And I don't think that's what the scriptures are saying to do. Now, I understand often what those churches mean, and that is everybody has a ministry Everybody has a job to do. Everybody needs to serve Christ. Everybody needs to be involved in sharing the gospel and witnessing. But I think we want to maintain the distinction that the Bible does, that there are elders who are given to teaching and ruling in the church. And the Bible says, let not many of you become teachers in the formal sense, lest you incur a stricter judgment. On the other hand, sometimes you have in other churches people who are saying the only people who can do evangelism is the minister. And our job is just simply to come and, and, and show up, maybe invite people to church, but that's all we do. And, and I don't think it's, it, it is one extreme or the other. I think it's a both and. I think we are to evangelize by inviting people here to hear the proclamation of the word of God formally, but also informally as you go out. And that's what I think we see in chapter 8. God was using both. The laity have a role in sharing Jesus Christ with their neighbors. Now, so let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, what is it that hinders us in our going out to Judea and Samaria and the utter ends of the earth and talking and gossiping the gospel? What I want to do is give you, uh, let's see, one, two, three, six. I, I lettered them, sorry. Uh, six, I think. Six problems that we sometimes face, sometimes practical, sometimes more theological. I'm going to give you six things, and maybe you can come up and tell me some of the ones that I missed that you struggle with. But, but here are six, I think, problems that churches uh, confront sometimes, particularly in our circles, or maybe you individually deal with in your own life. Okay? Why is it that evangelism and outreach might not be our strongest suit? All right, number one, this, this one's theological in nature. A misunderstanding of God's sovereignty and salvation. A misunderstanding of God's sovereignty in salvation. To put it more concretely, a misunderstanding of Calvinism, or what we might really call an adoption of hyper-Calvinism. An adoption theologically or practically, maybe they wouldn't be theoretically hyper-Calvinists, but in practice, they are hyper-Calvinists. All right, what, now what do I mean by that? I just threw out a ton of terms there. Let me, let me see if I can explain this. Many, I believe, 
uh, of you have become convinced of God's sovereignty and salvation. And I, if you're visiting here and you want to know what we believe on this subject, I believe the Bible teaches, you can look in Romans 9, Ephesians 1, you can look at any page of the Bible really, but, but those would be the best. Uh, and you will see God is sovereign over everything. I mean, come tonight and look at Psalm 93 with us. We're going to deal with the subject, the Lord reigns. Okay. I believe God is absolutely sovereign over everything that comes to pass. I don't think there's anything outside the control of God, even the will of man. I believe God is, is in control of every electron in the universe. Every molecule in the universe is under the authority and the sovereignty of Almighty God. And nothing can happen apart from his decree. Everything that comes to pass is absolutely ordained of God. And that includes saving people. Those who come to faith in Jesus Christ do so by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. Predestined before the foundation of the earth. Christ coming and dying for their sins. The Holy Spirit coming and applying that salvation to us. Now, having said that, there are some people who embrace the sovereignty of God, but then misunderstand the sovereignty of God to diminish the importance of human responsibility. Let me say that again. Some people take to the sovereignty of God, but then have a false deduction or conclusion that because God is absolutely sovereign, therefore I am not either theoretically or in some cases practically responsible for bringing salvation to other people. Let me give you an illustration. Some people will say, if God wants to save them, he will save them. I had a woman tell me that many years ago when I was going on a mission trip to Uganda and I was sharing with her my plans to go to Uganda and she was of a primitive Baptist background. That would be a a church, a denomination that I believe is what we would call hyper-Calvinistic. Okay, and and she said to me, you don't need to go. And I said, what do you mean I don't need to go? And she said to me, if God wants to save those people, he will save them. Now, let me turn your attention here to the book of Romans, because it is true. If God wants to save them, he will save them. But the question is, how does God in his sovereignty save people? And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10. Now remember, Romans chapter 10 comes immediately after Romans chapter 9. And what's in Romans chapter 9? Romans chapter 9 is about the sovereignty of God in salvation. The sovereignty of God in election. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Jacob I saved, Esau I condemned to eternal hell. Okay? So there's the sovereignty of God in salvation. But now, look at chapter 10 with me. What do we find? Paul says in verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How does an unsaved person call on the name of the Lord? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without what? A preacher. And notice verse 15. How will they preach unless they are Sent. And these are the verses that I had to bring to this woman's attention here. That God, who is sovereign in salvation in Romans chapter 9, is sovereign in the means of the salvation. 
He or God ordains not only the end from eternity past in election, but he also ordains that somebody would preach the gospel to you. Somebody shared the gospel with you. How did you come to know Jesus Christ? You came to know Jesus Christ instrumentally because somebody told you something. Somebody put a book in your hand. Somebody invited you to church. Somebody was praying for you. Somebody was doing something. Humanly, instrumentally, to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. So what we have to see here is that the Bible says to us Calvinists, yay that you're a Calvinist. Boo if you're a hyper-Calvinist. Yay, you believe in the sovereignty of God election. Boo if you think that the sovereignty of God in election is a pillow of laziness for your head. Yay if you believe that God will save all those whom he has elected Boo, if you think that practically that means you don't need to be involved in the Great Commission. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are those Calvinists who see the sovereignty of God and they say, this is fantastic. God is sovereign. That means that he's in control and I can go anywhere and everywhere and preach the gospel to all creation and God will use my pitiful little witnessing, my pitiful little testimony, my pitiful little preaching and save people and bring them to Jesus Christ. How great is that? How freeing is that? It's not up to me. I just have to go. I just have to try and do my best. And and God will use me instrumentally to bring people out of darkness into eternal life. So this is why We are told by the scripture to be fishers of men. This is why the scripture says compel them to come in. So I want to ask you, I know that you probably theoretically, I hope nobody here is a hyper-Calvinist theoretically, but are you practically a hyper-Calvinist? Have you become practically a hyper-Calvinist? That is, is there very little difference between you and the primitive Baptist who says, I don't need to invite anybody to church. I don't need to go to Uganda. God will save them if he wants to save them. God will bring them to this church if he's calling them. Are you practically a hyper-Calvinist? Are you expecting the Holy Spirit to just suddenly wake somebody up one morning with a strange impression while they're sleeping? Hey, I think we need to go to Covenant Church this morning. Or do you think it's more likely that he'll use you to invite somebody and say, hey, will you go with us to church and come, come eat with us afterward? The Bible says we need to do the latter. All right, so misunderstanding of God's sovereignty and salvation. Number two, pride. Pride. Pride is the chief of sins lurking in our heart. And uh, it causes us to look down on other people, other groups. And sometimes, I believe... Because the heart is deceitful above all things, the pride that is within our hearts causes us at times to think, you know, those people deserve what they get. I just finished David Platt's book, uh, Radical. It took me only two days to read. It's a, a very quick read. It's a very good read. I highly commend it. David Platt is a Southern Baptist minister in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, the book is subtitled, Taking Your Faith Back from the American Dream. 
And in that book, he says that he went to the home of one of the deacons uh, of a church that he was visiting that had been supporting his ministry when he was uh, pastoring in inner city uh, New Orleans before Hurricane Katrina. And he was ministering to the poorest of the poor there in New Orleans. And as they were sitting there, one of the deacons in that living room actually said in the conversation, he said, you know, I think it's great that you're there, but personally, I think those people should go to hell. And what David said after that, what just discouraged him so much is that no one else in the room ever said anything different. The conversation went on as though that deacon had never said anything terrible. But, you know, we, we see this in the Bible, don't we, with Jonah. Remember, remember, boys and girls, how God told Jonah, go to Nineveh, and Jonah runs away and he gets on a ship to go to Tarshish. Now, why did Jonah do that? Jonah did it because of pride. Because it was those Ninevites, they were the enemies of, of the Israelites. You see, at the, you have to read the end of the book of Jonah, where Jonah confesses why he didn't go. Because he goes and he preaches for three days in the city, and the city repents. And then Jonah's frustrated with God. See, God, I knew you were going to show mercy to these people. I knew if I went there and shared the gospel, you'd show them mercy. Now, what is he essentially saying? God, I was wishing you were going to damn those people. Now, we ought to be careful lest we, you know, think we are all that far from Jonah. Is there not maybe groups of people that we think? Those Yankees up there, those liberals who are destroying this country socially and politically, you know, they ought to get what they deserve. You know, God had to put Jonah in the belly of a great fish to bring him to his senses. And it may be God is going to have to put you in a dark, smelly, wet place in your life. To break your pride down. To get you to go to Nineveh. God's been telling you to go to Nineveh. And you've been resisting. God's been telling you to go to a neighbor. God's been telling you to do something. And you've been saying, no, I don't have time right now. We've got other things to do. I don't feel the energy. I don't want to do it. I'm getting on a boat to Tarshish. Number three, evangelism and outreach may not be our strong suit due to a backslidden spiritual condition. This is very similar to Jonah. Jonah was in a backslidden condition. But it is evidenced in a lack of interest in other people. It's not an outward hostility. It's not, I hate that group of people. And I hope they go to hell. It's more subtle. I'm just not interested in getting interested in other people. It's a more passive disinterest. It's, it's more of a self-centeredness, family-centeredness that allows no room in the schedule to reach out to other people. Again, we can look at the life of Jonah in this regard. Jonah is on the boat as he's fleeing from God and he is there with all these idolaters. And you know, Jonah just says, you know, I really don't want to witness to these sailors. I think I'll just go down into the hull of the ship and take a nap. I know it's getting stormy out there and they're calling on their gods and on their idols. And I could tell them that those gods are no gods at all. And I could use that as an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But, you know, I, I would just sooner just go down and sleep. But just a passive disinterest 
And, and why does he have this disinterest in other people? It's because he himself is spiritually asleep. I think it's a picture of his spiritual condition. Jonah, I think, is a true believer, but he is, he is asleep to the needs of other people. And I think there are probably a lot of evangelicals and maybe a lot of us in the Reformed faith who are asleep to the 4.5 billion people out there who have not heard of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you an illustration just so you know. I'm in the same boat as Jonah and you. Uh, you know, I say this you know, to my own shame as I was writing this sermon. Uh, not just to scorch your own conscience, but to look at my own life. And, and I was thinking about a particular neighbor on my street. You know, I said, you know, I have lived diagonally from this neighbor for 12 years and have never invited him over to my house. He lives about 70 yards from my house. And I, I was thinking about, can you imagine on the day of judgment? And I have to be on one side of Christ, I hope. Trusting in Jesus Christ with those on, on Jesus' right hand. And can you imagine if I had to look 60 yards over the other side of the aisle and see my neighbor who I never even invited to come over to my house? He was 60 yards away for 12 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years away from the person who could tell him the way, the truth, and the life. But I've been asleep in the hull of the ship. I bet I'm not the only one alone in this room who's got a neighbor 60 yards away. You know, there are some people on my street I don't even know their name. And my guess is there are many here like that with me. Number four, why might evangelism and outreach not be our strong suit? We rationalize in our mind, I witness by my life. I witness by my life. Now, i got a couple things to say about that. First of all, yes, you do witness by your life. I remember Steve Brown told us in seminary, he said, don't tell them that you're a minister, but when they find out, don't let them be surprised. Okay? You better be witnessing with your life. When they find out you're a Christian, don't let them be surprised. Sinclair Ferguson has given the illustration. He loves getting on elevators and talking with people. And as you know, Dr. Ferguson has a Scottish accent. He has a Scottish brogue, boys and girls. And so he talks like this. And people will say you know, to him, you know, where are you from? And he loves to say to them, I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. <laughs> What he means, though, by that is that we should, by our lives, people should say, if they are watching and listening to us, where is he from? He is not of this world. Now, so I want to say there is a sense, yes, you witness by your life. However, I think Vody Bachman, who has said, has a good point as well. It is not by our life alone that we witness. 
Nobody pulls their car over the side of the road and says, man, I was watching the way you mowed that lawn. And and can you tell me what must I do to be saved? I mean, the way you you went back and forth and your lines are so straight. So we witness by our life, but that is we do not witness only by our life. Remember, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it's not just your life that the people need. They need you, they need you to speak to them. They need you to share with them. I'll talk more about that when we get to the what can we do to improve. Number five, I think, letter E. Fear of man. Uh, the desire to be respected by certain people, the desire to be liked. I know I feel this. Sometimes if, if somebody I, I know is, is a very bright person the other day, I, I had to go and meet with a guy and he's got a, a Ph.D. from Stanford. And and, you know, I knew I was going to be, you know, a little nervous uh, because I knew intellectually he, he is a very bright man. I also know that he, he denies the Trinity and, and we've had discussions in the past. And there is that temptation if, to shave some of the edges of, of the truth, of the Bible, of the gospel, so that I'll be respected. And I think academics, you face this pressure uh, to, you know, that I, I will, I'll be better accepted in my scholastic community uh, if, if I downplay my allegiance to Jesus. But I want you to think about the Apostle Paul when he went to Athens, the, the, the best university in the day, of that day. And, and he was there in the Areopagus with all these intellectual people. And what, what did he do? He, he preached Christ. He even preached the resurrection. And they scoffed at him. Now some believed, but a lot of them scoffed. But Paul stuck to his guns. And, and the few that said, we want to hear more about this, he met with them again. The fear of man, Proverbs says, is a snare. And we've got to overcome that fear. And we've got to just trust Jesus. I've got to be faithful to the gospel, to the truth, and the consequences will be the consequences. And if that means I don't get a promotion, it means I don't get a promotion. If it means I don't get tenure, it means I don't get tenure. If it means I can't teach at this university, it means I can't teach at this university. If it means this university won't accept me as a student, then so be it. I would rather identify with Jesus in a community college than to distance myself from Jesus and graduate from Harvard. Here's the last one. What might keep us... Oh, well, let me say, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Last one. A lack of faith in God. A lack of faith in the power of the Holy Spirit or in the gospel itself. It's interesting that as Jesus went around and performing miracles, those of his own hometown, Jesus often could do the, the fewest miracles. And the reason the Bible tells us is because they don't believe. Now, I don't fully understand all this, but there is a connection between a lack of trust and lack of faith in Jesus and the ability to do the works of God. And maybe what we need to do is confess to the Lord, that one of our problems when it comes to outreach and evangelism 
And why may it not be our strongest suit is we need to confess, Lord, we really don't believe. We haven't really believed that you would work through us. We didn't really believe that you would save people through us. I struggle with this as a pastor. I sometimes wonder, will anybody really come to faith in Jesus Christ because of my preaching? One of the, that was one of the most encouraging things to me, I think, about going to Uganda. Is when I went to Uganda, you know, I just simply brought my old sermons with me. And, and I preached the same old sermons I preached here. And I, uh, in fact, I had to preach them through an interpreter uh, because those who could understand English often didn't understand my American accent. And, and so we would use, you know, the interpreter. Anyway, well, anyway, all that to say, we had a lot more barriers than I do over here. And yet more people came to faith in Jesus Christ in that preaching. I mean, I had a guy interrupt my sermon. He stood up and said, I want to come to faith in Jesus. I want to become a believer. And the congregation all applauded. <laughs> I've never had that happen here. (laughs) But it encouraged me that, you know, it's the same old me, it's the same old message, but the Holy Spirit was working powerfully over there. Maybe we need to ask God to do the same here and work powerfully here in our lives. Well, what can we do about it? I've got to close with this. What can we do to improve our own outreach and, and evangelism? Uh, I've got a lot of them here, so I don't know how many I have. Number one, keep the gospel before you. Keep the gospel before you. You know, I could give you a lot of do this and do that, and I won't. I mean, I will, but let me say the gospel has to be at the center of everything. Jesus Christ has to be at the center of everything we do. And, And so we first need to say, are we saved? Am I believing in Jesus Christ? Am I trusting in Jesus Christ? Richard Baxter says this in his book to uh, pastors in his book, Reformed Pastor, make sure, pastor, you're converted, that you're trusting in Jesus Christ and keep Jesus before you, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that you're saved by grace. And now that you've been saved by grace, go show grace to other people. You've been shown grace by God. Now you pursue others. Jesus came into this world. He just didn't write it on the sky, but he came into this world incarnate. He took on human flesh. He became like us yet without sin. He came to dwell among us. And you need to go and dwell among others and pursue them because Jesus pursued you. Number two, self-consciously become more involved in the lives of people around you. Self-consciously become more involved in the lives of those around you. That means I think you and your spouse and your children maybe even need to have some huddle time and, and do something where you plan to reach out to other people and say, you know, we're going to take that sermon that Pastor Boyd preached to heart and we're going to work on reaching out more and we're going to, and we're going to demonstrate that we're going to do this by we're going to just find some time on the calendar. We're going to, we're going to do something that it's in the schedule you see, because if it doesn't get there, I'm afraid what's going to happen for some of you is it's just going to be a, a leftover. After all the soccer and the baseball and the piano lessons and the ballet and homeschooling meetings and all this, oh yeah, maybe we'll get evangelism outreach to our neighbors somewhere, maybe never, yeah. If you don't put it on the calendar. And getting involved in the community. 
you know, I, I have to, many of you know, several years ago, a friend of mine from college ran for Congress around here, and I got involved in his campaign. I felt a little funny about it. I, I don't know if I'd do it all again, even the same way, but I did learn this. I met more people getting involved that I still have contacts with today than I think I'd ever met before. Just by getting involved in that one civic opportunity, I've made friendships and relationships that I think will be with me so long as I'm here. And I thought, as I looked back on why did God have me do this, especially when my friend lost, (laughs) you know, what, what was the purpose of this, God? That was one of the things that stood out to me. And, you know, it got me out of my study. It got me out of my, my comfort zone. It got me out of just ministering among my own people. And I know that is my calling. I am a pastor, and the pastor looks over the sheep. But it also made me go to a lot of meetings with people who didn't share the same views I share. And maybe, maybe we need to do more of that. Recently, I had an opportunity just simply, uh, again, getting involved in my own neighborhood subdivision. Uh, We had an opportunity to clean the pool furniture. They're opening the pool for the spring and summer here. And, you know, all the furniture needs to be washed and Clorox and all that. And just simply going to that event and and meeting with other people. One time I served on the board of directors. Um, I decided I I didn't really want to. They elected me president and I didn't. This is what happens when you show up to these meetings in a suit, I'm convinced. And, uh, and, uh. You know, for the sake of the gospel, I decided, well, all right, I'll serve this one term. But, I, you know, I, I didn't want to spend a lot of my capital telling people to mow their lawn, you know, when I'm a pastor looking for bigger fish. But, again, being involved in some of these activities helped me to get to know a number of my neighbors. It also helped me appreciate the church more. Uh, you know, it made me appreciate what a lot of you men face at work. I mean... The, the way people deal with each other and the, the tone of voices they use with each other and disagreements and the gossip and, ah, I mean, there were aspects that I didn't like, but, but there were also aspects where I could be salt and light and hopefully uh, of good use for the sake of the gospel. Look for needs and ministries and opportunities. I didn't ask for permission to use this illustration. I hope the Summers family doesn't mind, but the Summers family went to the activities director at the Florence Hand Home and uh, asked to adopt one of the residents there. And in God's providence, they found somebody who had actually served in the military. So that as a family, uh, they have an opportunity now to go and visit uh, this man in in the nursing home. Think about uh, the, the kids in this community that have no gospel witness. I was talking with somebody and I said, can you imagine what it's like to go to middle school or high school in in a home that is so dysfunctional that your mother is partying until 2.30 in the morning, she's getting high, and you have to go to school the next day? Can you imagine what that environment is like? And and can you imagine the, the need that is out there? You know, maybe it's through your rec leagues, through soccer, baseball, that you're going to be able to reach some of these community groups that you might not otherwise be able to, to reach. Maybe, maybe you need to put it on the calendar to have your baseball team or your soccer team over to the house. I was reading an article by a minister. He and his wife, they moved into an apartment complex. It's one of those modern-day 
you know, uh, apartment complexes and uh, where nobody knows anybody. And they decided, you know, we're going we're gonna to do something about this. So he and his wife, they made up these really nice, fancy invitations and they gave them out to all their neighbors around them. And they said, we would like to get to know our neighbors. And they gave an RSVP and come over to this party if you want to come over. And they gave opportunity for people to bring food. And, and, uh, and the funny thing was, we talk about all this time about individualism in our society today and how the, you know, there's a loss of neighborhood and a loss of community. And, uh, and I think there is that. But what was interesting was uh, as they did come over, and many of them did come over, and the man said, you know, this is great. We're getting to meet all these people. And it gave him an opportunity to share the gospel. He was able to witness in a single sentence and say, you know, this is what we Christians believe. We believe in, in community. And so, you know, just through that one event in a single sentence, he was able to demonstrate uh, something about the Christian life to, to his neighbors. I found this to be something in as, as well, I lived for four and a half years in the apartment complex across from the library and uh, was able to start a Bible study. Uh, now, it was uh, all widows and elderly women and me, but those were my neighbors, okay? And, uh, you know, there were a few others. But uh, anyway, we, we met at uh, Mrs. Cook's apartment because I lived upstairs and, and some of them uh, were not... Uh, ambulatory enough to go upstairs and, and so we said miss cook you know will you host it i'll come i'll do the teaching i'll do the the preaching if you if you'll open your house and she said she would and and so there we gather once a week and and we'd have a bible study together uh it was a wonderful uh, opportunity uh find out uh the names of, of stores or restaurants that you like to go to and, and get to know those people um, there's one guy that I've been inviting to church for several years. I still haven't gotten him here. I've, gave, I've given him Christian literature. Um, I've been praying for him occasionally. But uh, think about getting to know those places that, you know, you just know you're going to go there again and again and again. Uh, ask them how their business is doing. Jack Miller, who uh, wrote the book Outgrowing the Ingrown Church, uh, he used to ask business owners how their business was doing and then and ask if he could pray with them that their business would prosper. Man, business guys love that. You know, if, you, if you'll just pray that God would bless them and bless their business, man, that, that strikes to a real interest of theirs. And, and so he would, he would right there pray uh, for God to, to bless them as a way of beginning to witness to them. Think creatively about how you or your family can extend the kingdom here. Some of you are involved in various things, the pregnancy center, other things. Whatever it may be, it's going to be different because you are gifted in a certain way that other people aren't gifted. And God has given you particular gifts. He's given all of you, if you're a Christian here this morning, he's given you gifts of the Spirit to use and exercise. Our job here at Covenant is to equip you. This is where I do agree with those guys who say every member a minister. In the sense that every one of us is a servant. So let's remember this morning, you're on a mission field as well. The mission fields aren't just out there in Africa, in Asia, but they're right here too. We are on a mission field. We're expected by God to build the kingdom here. And if you have any ideas for ministry, we want to equip you to do that ministry. So I, I just simply close by asking, what is your outreach ministry? Let's pray together.